sports fans rejoice. You're listening to my team, my voice with MTMV Sports. Hey, what's going on? It's Justin Sarachik, editor of Rapzilla.com, and you are watching MTMV Sports. Keep it locked. Hello and welcome to the Know Your Personnel podcast. We are on all major podcast apps. You can also find us on MTMV Sports Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to both stations that you never miss an episode. Please remember to leave us a five-star rating. Download and share this episode with a friend so we can continue to grow the game. I'm very excited for our next guest. Let's jump in. All right, I'm very excited about our next guest. Uh, we have Coach Arginal. Coach Arginal is the associate head coach at Cal State Fullerton. He has spent the last 16 years uh, coaching in college, uh, the majority of those at the Division I level, including a Division II head job at Cal State East Bay. Uh, coach Arginal, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I'm, I'm honored and fired up to, to see your face and get going here, so let's let's get it going. Coach, I uh, before I get into college, I always want to talk about the high school side of it. As you know, I'm a high school coach. I, I love high school hoops. And uh, you had a, a particularly good high school basketball career playing at De La Salle. Can you talk to me a little bit about your De La Salle days and, and playing for coach and what you learned and what you went through during that time? Yeah, I was extremely lucky. I think that people that get into coaching, they're, they're usually inspired by somebody during their career. And, and I was inspired for sure by my high school coach and coaches. Um, you know, I grew up in the Bay area um, in Lafayette, California. And my, my dad, uh, he went to Reardon in San Francisco and he always wanted me to kind of go to a school like that. And uh, I remember as a young, young kid, probably eight or 10 years old, him bringing, put me in the car and saying, we're going to go to a big game tonight. I thought maybe the warriors mm -hmm. or, or whatever, maybe a, a college game. And, and we show up at, this brick building. I don't even know what, where it was. Um, and we walk in and it's Dale South basketball, you know, versus a local team. And I remember walking in and, uh, just seeing, seeing these guys and kind of reading the bios and getting to know who they were. Um, and I was like hooked on going to Dale South. I just thought it was the coolest place ever. Uh, I can still remember they had shooting shirts and, and their shooting arm was cut off, but their, their other arm, on their shooting shirt was long. And I thought, Oh my gosh, these guys are the, I think they were wearing and one shoes back then. So um, that'll date myself. But yeah, I was really, really excited, fired up. And my first high school coach was Louis Raynaud, who was a longtime college coach as well um, at Santa Barbara, Rice, Cal. He was a phenomenal coach. Uh, and then uh, I was really lucky to have coach Alaco take over. And again, I went to his camps growing up, probably a lot like some of the young you know, players in your area, they go to your camps and they're around you. And I just, I wanted to play for him. Uh, and had my my dream come true and in doing that you know I just was able to to get into a program that was all about what I'm about you know they took playing hard and having discipline having sacrifice that was what the whole program was the aura of the program it wasn't just about having the most talent so I was probably really lucky because I was not the most talented guy um, but to be able to play somewhere where it was about the team um, inspiring young men I fit in perfectly and then Coach Alaco is probably the greatest motivator I've ever been around, uh, whether it's a locker room speech, um, what he does in the community. He, he just has a way with not only words, but, but with people. And so at that point right there, I was like, wow, if I could be something, uh, I would love to be, you know, a high school coach. I'd love to, you know, keep playing as long as I could. And he inspired you to want to do that. But, but I always remember him saying one thing that sticks in my head still. And I tell our players, this is 
you know, like I was, someday there's going to be somebody that comes into your gym, your high school gym, to watch you guys play tonight with their dad, 10, 12-year-old kid that wants to go to Del Sal or wants to go to whatever, you know, El Toro, whatever high school it is. Um, and can you inspire them to want to come here? Can you inspire them to want to play like you? So, you know, that's the type of level of, um, you know, passion that I was around at a young age. And I think that I was just hooked on basketball once I was able to play for coach. And, you know, he's gone on to be McDonald's All-American um, game coach. He was, you know, national coach of the year. And uh, now he's an assistant athletic director at USF. So extremely lucky at a young age to see the, probably the best of the best. Yeah, Coach Alaco is definitely legendary, especially in Northern California. He's almost untouchable up there as far as basketball coaches go. You said he was a very motivating person. Could you give me an example maybe of what that would look like and how you maybe have taken that into your coaching career? I think he found different ways. I think as a coach right now, especially with the time um, that it is with social media and how much guys are on their phone, I could only imagine what he would be doing to us now with the phone and like all that. But back then it was, you know, you'd walk in your locker room every single day and there'd be a new quote sitting on your chair or there'd be something pasted into your locker room. Or, um, you know, we used to, before practice, he'd bring us into a room and we'd sit there and we'd, we'd listen to like a song that was meaningful to somebody. So he just had all these little ways um, that were spiritual in some ways, um, but they were also just very deep and for I think for a high school you know young man it was probably something new to me Mm -hmm. um and then he was just extremely passionate he expected our work ethic was so high he expected so much from us um that when it came to big games and I think a lot of people say this all the time we almost would refuse to lose in some ways because we had put so much into it um and obviously there's time constraints and it's probably a little bit different back then Mm -hmm. um you know that was 1996 to 99 I guess was my time frame uh but wow, we just put in so much work. We were so bonded together. Um, I remember one time we walked in for the playoffs and as I walked in the gym, like this music was just blaring and I'm like, I know these songs. And it was, it was Hoosiers, right? So he had all the Hoosiers music playing for some guys, mm-hmm. some kids probably never seen Hoosiers, but mm-hmm. uh, back then it was, a you know, the eighties great movie. And I walked in and as I'm walking in, it's playoffs and he just starts yelling out like, it's, it's, it's March, you know, like you gotta be ready to go. It's time to win. This is our time. We're men of March. And so just things like that. And again, I try to bring that probably more passion and energy and excitement to our team more than anything. You can never be somebody else. You can only be you, but um, in my own way, try to inspire young men like he inspired me. For our listeners, if you've never seen Hoosiers, uh, you need to turn the podcast off and you need to go figure out how to get it on your TV. You need to watch it, then come back and join us. But um, that that's a great. Uh, th- those are great things. That sounds like fun. I get fired up hearing him say, hearing you say things like that. Uh, you uh, you you were a bit humble on your uh, accomplishments as a player. You were a pretty good high school point guard, correct? Yeah. And then you were recruited to play, or you ended up playing at UC Davis. Can you talk to me about the recruiting process and how you ended up on campus there? Yeah, the, the process then is so much different than now. And I keep saying that, but it, it really is when you look back at it. Um, I was lucky. I went to, I think it was like the double pump camp. They used to only have one week of it um, down here at Dominguez Hills. I went out there and Bill Trusser, who was the assistant at Davis at the time, saw me play. And that was in July going into my senior year, nothing crazy. And uh, I wasn't like some of these guys that get recruited as sophomores and juniors. Yeah. And, you know, I was going into my senior year. He saw me, like me, and they started recruiting me. And back then it was, you get one call a week. So I think it was like on Wednesday night at 5.30, he would call me. And it literally happened like that for two or three months. And then um, the head coach came down and met with my parents. Uh, and my parents were divorced. Um, so it was actually interesting getting everybody in a room together. I remember that. 
part of it being a little bit interesting. Um, but I just thought it was so cool that a coach was actually driving down to come see me. I lived in the Bay, so it was about an hour away, but just to recruit me. Um, and then I went on an official visit uh, to like their Midnight Madness. And at that time, Davis was the perennial Division II power. Um, and, and it was sold out. There was like six to 7,000 people for Midnight Madness at a Division II school. So I was hooked. I walked up there. There was a line around the corner. Uh, it was it was a pretty insane atmosphere. If you think back, I, I don't think many division one schools on the West coast could get what we were getting at the Davis at that time. Um, and from there I, I committed early and it was probably the best thing for me uh, because I was just so into my high school team. It was almost more pressure, you know, off my shoulders. And, and I had been recruited by a couple of schools, Cal Poly, San Luis Northridge, um, Idaho state, but, but truly, you know, when I was at Davis, it had the combination of winning a great academic experience and social and, um, I, I was ready to go and excited about that. And it was the best, probably one of the best moves I could have ever made. I met my wife there and, you know, my lifelong friends. And we have a whole crew of coaches that come from Davis and um, kind of branch out into, um, you know, now even the Fullerton job that I have now. But uh, it's it's been a weird kind of like the Bob Williams branch of coaching is, mm-hmm. has really extended. And so I was lucky to, to play in that. And I think it's helped me even as a coach down the road now. So you made the transition from high school to college, and uh, it's a big jump. And, and, and a lot of kids just think it's the transition's very easy, and you just move up, and now it's college. College basketball at any level is very difficult. Can you talk to me about how that transition was and what you learned for playing for your college coach? I, in high school, like you said, and everybody says this, that you're playing, you're probably one of the better players in your area um, or on your team, you're the best player. I was lucky. I was on a team with maybe six or seven Division One players, so I was not the best player even on my high school team, and they were younger than me. I was one of the only seniors, um, but I had experienced a high level of high school basketball, um, and going to college, you think you can step right in. I remember going to a practice, and I was watching a team that had just come from a national championship with my dad. It's October, and I'm sitting there watching, and I'm like, Dad, I can, I can start there. Like, next year, I'm starting, and I remember one of the assistants kind of heard me say that. And he's like, I just want you to know that that guy that you're watching, his name is Dante Ross. He's a first team All-American. And last year in the national championship game, Dean Smith on the telecast said that he could play for me any day. So uh, when you think about the levels, I was going to a division two school, but when I got there, the things that were so much different was really me. I had to manage my time. You know, when you're in high school, it's a little bit different, right? You're on a schedule with your family. You're on a schedule with your high school classes. College, you may have one class in the morning. You may have three hours off. Um, you may have weights at, you know, 7 a.m. Every day is different. So what you do is different. You know, you're socially, you know, how late you stay up, how early you get up. Um, you know, all those different things are now on you. And I think for every student, not just an athlete, it takes a while to figure out how do I study? Am I better at night? Am I better in the morning? Um how do I eat correctly? There are so many variables that go into college that, that student athletes in the high school uh, student athletes don't even think about. Um, but then you put on put on that everybody's as good as you. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you're not going to walk into a college program that's good and be the best player as a freshman. Most likely, um, there's only a couple schools in the country that have that happen. So um, you're humbled again, um, and, and yet again have to learn a new system, a new verbiage, uh, how you walk through the hallways, what's expected of you on a daily basis. So it, it definitely took me. I actually redshirted my first year, um, and it was kind of tradition at, De- at Davis that everybody would redshirt. Um, but I definitely needed it. I got stronger. Um, I was young for my age, so I was able to take a year and develop. Uh, and then really the biggest thing that helps you do is just understand, like you said, the speed of the game, what the coaches want. At the point guard position uh, in high school, I knew exactly what my high school coach wanted. 
then in college, it was a whole different ball game. We ran a different system, uh, knowing the plays better than the coaches know them as part of your job. You have to really be dialed in. Um, and, and a lot was expected of the point guard at, at Davis at that time. And so it took me a while uh, to get adjusted. And then, you know, throughout my career, I started to get better. But I definitely had the, the typical college career, you know, play a little bit, sit on the bench, start for a while, get injured. I had everything kind of happen, which was great for me. And I think to really relate to players down the road now as a coach. Talk to me about your college coach and what you learned from him and, you know, how that helps you now as a coach. I had two coaches. I was recruited by Brian Fogel, the head coach. He's now the head coach at Chico State for the women on the women's side. Uh, and then my senior year, I played for Gary Stewart, um, who's a Division three coach at Stevenson now in back east. Um, so two totally different men. Uh, Brian Vogel was an assistant that took over after the national championship uh, team. Um, and it was actually great for me to see the transition of maybe somebody that went from assistant coach to head coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a younger coach at that time with a lot of pressure on him uh, and to see how he, you know, handled his staff. And then I thought it was actually invaluable. You know, unfortunately there was a change in coaching going into my senior year uh, and Gary Stewart took over and it was probably great for me to see, okay, here's a new coach. He's going to come in and change the culture the way he wants it. And I had to go through that. Uh, and it was a interesting, uh, we always say there was a lot of scenes. We felt like we were, we were in the number of the Titans running through um, Gettysburg uh, in the morning with coach Stewart. And he was awesome. He did a great job with our team. We ended up winning 18 games my senior year, having probably my best year uh, in my college career. But I, I got to see like what he wanted was much different than coach Fogel's. And it wasn't a, a bad or good. It was just different um, in what fit our team. And he really challenged me to be better. I thought I was doing all these things really well. And he really wanted me to be a better leader. Um, we got 5:30 a.m. conditioning for three hours uh, in the spring. Uh, I think he was trying to get rid of a lot of us, right? <laughs> uh, he needed some better players, but uh, the guys that made it through, uh, we were we were really bonded, and we had a great senior year. And then that team transitioned into Division One, um, and I ended up coming back and coaching at a young age the guys that I played with. Talk about that transition because you finished at De La Salle, and then you came right back there to coach with guys that you played with. Um, talk about transitioning from a player to a coach and what really got you into coaching. Wow. Again, you can go a lot of different ways. Like I told you first, I think I was really inspired to want to be a coach by my high school coaches. I think when I got to UC Davis and I saw college basketball, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like I, I, like, you know, I was in charge of hosting people on recruiting visits. I thought there was a lot of different parts of it that excited me. Um, and building a team and I, and I'm just being very honest, you know, we used to, again, this is kind of where my ego is. I, when we were at UC Davis, I was on the second team for a while. I remember we used to call the second team Duke cause I loved Chris Duhon. I loved Wojo, you know, so that's where we were. We were college basketball players that were talking about other college basketball mm-hmm. players our age. We, we didn't think we were, we were Duke, but we were inspired. We wanted to be like those guys. So I've always had a, a dream deep down in my heart to be a part of programs like that you know, to be a team that was on ESPN one day, or, you know, I had all the newspaper articles in my room growing up as a kid, as we all did. Um, so it was always a dream. And then as I transitioned into it, um, you re- you realize there's a lot to learn. You realize that what you thought was going on as a player, you know, you walk into the office of the coach, and you're like, what are these guys doing? They don't do anything. They're just hanging out here on their computer, getting ready for practice. Like this was like a dream life. And as you know, coach, we don't, the majority of what we do is not coaching, right? We're, right. we're, we're teaching, we're fundraising, we're mentoring, we're going over academics, we're scheduling, we're getting things ready organizationally. And then 
oh yeah, for the 5% of the day, you get to go coach for two hours, right? So um, I had to definitely learn quickly, you know, and I, but I was really lucky uh, to be able to go to Arizona State right after playing at Davis and be thrown into, you know, a high major program, um, a power five program, and just be a fly on the wall as a graduate assistant. I got to see all these different things going on and not have a ton of pressure on me to mm-hmm. produce maybe a recruit or, you know, to do all those things. So I got to, to learn like a fly on the wall and actually it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I worked for one of the greatest coaches in America, Rob Evans, um, who was the first African-American head coach at Ole Miss in the basketball side. Um, and again, obviously you and I talked about this with what's going on in our country he was a he was breaking down doors back then in the SEC and in our country um, as one of those leaders. Um, and again, he changed the 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 Ole Miss basketball program. And so I, I learned from one of the greatest of all time, um, who's one of my mentors to today. I look at your uh, college coaching resume, and the the more college coaches that I work with, um, the more I see this, and and and. You know, it's so foreign to, you know, anyone who doesn't coach in college. But I'll, I'll list this and let me know if I missed anybody. Arizona State, uh, UC Davis, UT San Antonio, uh, UC Davis again, Chico State Rice. And all of that's before you took the head job at Cal State Ace, B, that I, Ace Bay. Did I miss anything on that? You got, I know it's hard to remember to go through them all. But, yes, you got them all. So, I mean, that and I think that's what a lot of coaches don't realize is that if you want to coach in college – I mean, you got to keep you live out of a suitcase because, you know, it's a couple years here. It's one season there. That coach gets fired or promoted. And then it's this guy. And then and then you go here and you're you can't get paid zero dollars anymore. So you have to go somewhere else. And before you know it, you've been to seven places in, you know, 10 years. Uh, and while that's, you know, fun to look at on paper and you probably learned a lot from it in the moment, it probably is very frustrating Talk to me about, you know, what what you learned in all of those places and what you learned as a traveling college coach um, in, in, in that short amount of time before you took your head job. Well, again, as you alluded, I, my, my path or journey is probably different than some. And you said the co- college coaching, you have to be prepared individually and as a family to to go or a job takes you some coaches are lucky enough to stay in one place for a long period of time maybe two or three jobs and then a head coach I was not that person and again I'm going to go back to what I told you earlier is I'm probably like most coaches where I didn't play at North Carolina mm-hmm. I didn't play at Kansas uh, I didn't play in the NBA I was a division two basketball player who was really passionate about basketball I love it I love relationships I wanted to be a coach so you have to scrap and claw it's just like anything coach like you're a head coach right now to be able to be a high school coach is so hard there's so many people that want your job right and again college coaching is no different with each level you go it's harder and harder but i would say that the job that you don't want is a job that everybody wants so i remember getting told that early on in my career so you leave this job i'm gonna have 50 people that want it tomorrow um but for me you know i I would say first off um, i was married early and i had a young family Uh, i've been really lucky you know my wife we were joking the other day we had our 14th wedding anniversary but we moved 15 times in 14 years um but again, you know, it part of that is just where the jobs that I've been, you know, fortunate enough to get where they've taken me, and I've had to work hard to get those opportunities. Um, but sometimes, like you said, yeah, I was a graduate assistant for a year, and at 24, I was offered UC Davis assistant job, probably for peanuts, like it was nothing, it was literally nothing. But it was a job as a Division One recruiter at a young age, and you go there, and then like you, you said something that stuck out was, well, you can't make. 
a tiny bit of money if you get married. You have a wife and you have the support and you know do something. So I went to UTSA and made a lot more money, and then um, came back to Chico State because my brother was a senior there, and I got to coach him and my best friend uh, in coaching. My mentor got the head coaching job, and I said, "Man, I got to get better at recruiting." So I want all the pressure on me. So I went back to Chico State. Um, and then from there, I said, well, you know, I want to try to become a Division II head coach, um, but I'm not getting the opportunities I want at Chico State. I think I might need to go to UC Davis, uh, learn from Jim Les, uh, take a step up to maybe come back down. And I did that. And then that opened up a door at Rice, which was a top academic institution in the country. And it was a no-brainer. It was also a lot more money. And there's all these different things that go into it. But from each job, I think I've become a better version of myself as a coach and a man. Uh, I always say UTSA was one of the best things I ever did. I went from an assistant to an ops person. And as you know, Coach, you've been through this. Like, You really want to coach, but you have to be really good at all the other things to be a good coach. You know, If you can run a summer camp, you can probably run a practice. Mm-hmm. If you can run um, – you know, if you can organize a trip, well, then when you're a head coach someday and you take you know, a group of young men on a road trip, you're going to know how to handle it. You're going to know what to do. And those are all – they think that they seem like small parts, but when you're a head coach and you have to train people to lead in those different areas, you know, what needs to be done. Um, so I do feel like I've touched almost every area in coaching through my career, um, you know, and even being able to be a head coach, but um, I think it's been really valuable for me to have all those. And so when I went into interview at East Bay, you know, I felt like I was ready, you know, Greg Kling prepared me to be a head coach at division two. Ben Braun showed me how to, you know, recruit and fundraise at a high level in Conference USA. And Jim West taught me um, basketball-wise as much as anybody. So I was – I felt like I was ready to do it um, and, and jump into it, and I didn't have any hesitation. Um, some people spend too, ma- too much time, in my opinion, doing jobs that look great, but they're not ready to go when it's their opportunity, and I was ready to go. What were the biggest things that you learned? Because when you take over a program, now all the all the responsibility is on you. You know, you, you can't defer to someone else. It's not someone else's losses. It's, it's your wins and losses. What are some things you learned, you know, from that that helped deliver, helped develop your philosophy, your style of play? How did that all come together as your first head coaching job? I, I think that you know, first off, when you take a, a the first process is going through is taking a head coaching job is deciding what job fits you. Um, and no matter what job you take, there's going to be negatives, positives, all those in between. I think the biggest thing you first learn is I got to find the right fit for myself. Um, and you know, the athletic director is extremely important, um, you know, for when you take a job. And so I was really, really specific about wanting to work for somebody that was like me. I was lucky to work for Sarah Judd when I first got to East Bay who was, was awesome. She was a Davis graduate. So I had some things that were connected um, there in terms of the job, as you, as you take a job and you start, uh, formulating, I think you can't walk into it and not have it already formulated who you are. Mm-hmm. Like you need to know, like you had a plan coach when you took over there. Uh, when I walked into East Bay, I was, I had my plan already. Um, but very quickly you realize that your plan may not fit exactly where you are. Yeah. What you think is going to happen may not happen. I'll give you some examples uh, for the coaches out there is like, I took a job and I was hired by one person. Four years later, I had had four ADs. So you take a job and suddenly now things change. You know, the vision of the program changes, the vision. And that, and that was probably a little bit affected what I did later on in terms of taking other jobs. So things change year to year. I think um, basketball-wise, like you said, now those wins and losses at night, those go right next to your name. Um, and I 
knew that it was going to be a long process. East Bay had never been good at the Division II level scholarship in terms of scholarship era. They had a, had a good run uh, in the mid-80s and 90s, but never at in that time period. So I knew it was going to be a rebuilding process, but I had gone through rebuilding process before. I was ready for that. Um, but you have to you have to have patience. Uh, I'm very impatient. Um, and some, and you know, my wife always says, well, yeah, that's, you know, you, you've gone here, here and here and you're impatient. You got to see it through. And I, as a head coach, you definitely want to do that. But I was very impatient. It taught me to realize what I was doing, um, was bigger than basketball, the relationships I was building. And it's hard to think that way. As you said, the wins and losses are racking up next to your name. Um, but I never looked at it like that. I was, I was very excited about the opportunity. And I think that that's what I always tell people when you're going for a job, if it doesn't feel like when you're getting married and you're going to propose to your wife and you're just ready to go, you know what you're doing. It, you know, the, the people that drag their feet into the day of marriage, I, I, I would say the percentages are pretty low on them having success. When the opportunity came around for East Bay, even though it was a tough position, even though they hadn't had a lot of tradition, even though there was a lot of uncertainty with it, I was so excited about the opportunity to run my own program and to have the pressure on me. And um, I wasn't, I've never been solely focused on just the wins and losses. Um, I wanted to be better at that time. I could have gone, maybe been a high major assistant or I could have gone, you know, just stayed division one. But for me, it's like, look, I want to be a leader of men. That's what I think of my best strength is as a coach is to lead people. Um, Let's go and and rock and roll and and I'm going to improve the program and do it my way. Um, But like you said, coach, what you think is your way to start off, has to be adjusted at times, you know, unless you know everything, unless it's very transparent through which it was, but things change as you go and you change and what you want changes. Um, and so I thought I could coach any person in America. Well, quickly you realize that's not the truth, even though you're young and, and, uh, you think you relate to every guy. Well, no, you know, I, I need a certain type of guy or I need a majority of these type of guys. Um, you know, and so I, I learned a lot about myself. I was so lucky to have that at a young age. I think I was 30 or 31 when I took the job um, to be a head coach at that level at that age was awesome. Um, made me so much better as a coach now, but, but again, it makes you have so much more respect for the coaches that had to deal with you uh, when, you're, <laughs> when you're a high school player, college player, makes you understand their decisions much better. And it also, I would say the number one thing, it makes you much more organized um, as a, as a coach, as a person. When I started coaching, I thought I, I wanted to be this, a billion things. My, if I spread my hands out, that's what I thought my program was going to be. And then you realize the smaller circle you have of understanding who you want to be as a program, the better you will be, whether it's offense, defense, uh, culturally, um, community service-wise. You know, all of those things, they become much smaller and much more focused, and you become better. I was a much better coach at my fourth year than I was my first year, and we had our best year. Um, and it's it was a slow process, but I felt like I uh, really improved, and that, that's what I wanted. Um, and, again, we got better players as recruiting went on. So um, such a great experience for me. I could go on and on about all the, the positives, all the negatives, all the things that I would redo, all the things that I thought I did really, really well. Um, and I've been asked that before in interviews, you know, uh, for, for other jobs, you know, what did you do? Well, what did you not do? Well, um, what would you do differently? You wouldn't do anything differently, but you're so lucky that now you can take that note and I have a notebook of what I, what I need to fix the next time around. If I'm so lucky. Mm-hmm. You talked about maybe one of your better strengths or being, being a leader and leading young men, um, on and off the court. 
what are some strategies and things that you do that our lead, that our listeners can learn from that makes you a good leader and things that you focus on to help leading other people? Well, I, one of my friends who's a college coach actually down here in Southern California, one of the better coaches, he gave me something that was really interesting. You know, we were talking about leadership and he said, well, lead, leading is just helping somebody else get better. Mm-hmm. You know, leadership is, is just that. So, you know, when I was a head coach or when I was assistant or when I was a player, I think that if you just put it in that small little capsule, okay, you're trying to teach a, a young player how to be a leader. Well, okay. Did you text your teammate this morning for your 8 a.m. workout to make sure that they were up? Like that's being a leader, right? That's mm-hmm. as simple as it could mm-hmm. be. You're like being a coach. Could you, um, as you walk into the hallway and you see a sophomore that's getting moved up to JVs, can you go up there and talk to him about what he needs to do that? that practice like it's his first practice could you there's so many little things you can do just to make can you make somebody else a little bit better today like you're you're making me better today. you know i'm having to communicate about my experiences that's something that i probably haven't done a lot in a while right so i'm you're making me better um you're 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 sending out information to people and helping people you're a leader in your community especially in coaching um you know i think that for me um you know as a head coach I, one specific thing that i think i did a really good job of and i'm gonna say as a head coach was i really met with my players a lot uh, and that seems simple but i from my day i took the job in 2013 to when i uh went to nevada in 2017 every single friday i had an individual meeting with my players for like it could go for five minutes to 30 minutes and you think that oh that's not a lot but it was, it was hard to stay on that and do that. And we may have it at a different place on campus. I might, but literally I felt like the thing that I had was my thumb on the players in a really good way. I really didn't know what was going on. Um, and it allowed me then through the week coming up to be able to text at 10 30, Hey, uh, Micah Dunauer, like you told me about, um, you know, this is going on with your family back in Hawaii. Like what's up with that? You know, it, it helps me understand like, them at a little bit different level um and again i think coaches always say well i have an open door policy and i always say this that's fine if you have an open door policy but do the kids want to walk through the door you know and and again most coaches or most players they don't want to come see their head coach a lot Mm -hmm. it's just a reality of how it goes and and there's a lot of different reasons that it happened i tried to break that down because of my youth at that time and i really feel like it was a, a beneficial um, thing that I did. And I think my relationships with my guys were extremely strong. Um, I actually have a zoom call with the whole crew, uh, my East Bay guys tomorrow. Like, so like those relationships are, are constantly going and I wanted to know truly what was going on with them. Cause I thought I could coach them harder. I was young. So I thought that if the, the, the closer I was to them, the harder I could push them. Whereas it maybe if I was older and I was kind of separated from them, I wouldn't be able to connect and get them going and inspire them. Um, and again, I didn't want to be them. I didn't want to be their buddies, but I wanted them to know, Hey, Nick, like if you're struggling with this, like you can come and truly come talk to me about this. And I had, um, some really hard conversations in my office, like things that you don't want to talk about with players. Um, but those are the things those days will come up. Like when I see them, you know, I'll get a text from Jack Pasquini about him being a fireman. And I remember talking to him about, you know, his dad being a fireman in my office and how that was his dream. And he felt pressure about doing it and all those different things that you go through. Um, so I, I think that if you keep it simple, but you're very consistent as a head coach or as a coach, uh, especially with your communication, I think that as a leader, you know, you have to communicate coach. Like that's the number one thing. And again, especially in these, these times in our, in our culture, players want attention 
in a good way. They want to like know that you love them, care about them. And again, I say the word love a lot uh, because I do love my players. And it's not just right when I get to be their coach. I love them. Like I got to Fullerton this year, and I didn't love Austin. I wish to go the first day on the job. Mm-hmm. But as I left this year, you know, I love Austin. He's one of my guys, you know, and he wasn't, I didn't recruit him, but, um, you know, I, I, I really tried to bridge the gap that we have through communication, transparent, constructive, honest, brutal, um, as much as possible. I like that. I, you know, uh, I've probably fallen victim to the, my door is open anytime, you know, you're welcome to come in there whenever you want. And uh, figured that that was enough. I mean, you know, when you're saying it in the time before I've had this conversation with you, I thought it was. But to hear you frame it, uh, it may not be. So uh, I think that's really good advice. Um, you finished at East Bay and then you became the associate head coach at University of Nevada, Reno. And you guys had a historic run uh, through that time there. You got to work for Coach Musselman, who's a very famous coach right now. Uh, does a really good job in all types of different a- areas. Talk to me about what you learned from him and what your initial interactions were with him and how you were hired. Uh, so it's such a funny story. People ask me that, and it's, it's probably different. Coach Musselman, um, you know, I, we were not extremely close. I had met him. One of my uh, former players at East Bay was actually a graduate assistant for him the year after he got done playing, Gabe Kindred. And so I met Coach Musselman just in an interaction, just saying thanks for taking care of my guy and, um, you know, hiring him on there as a graduate assistant. Um, I'd actually recruited one of his players that had transferred um, to East Bay. So I had a little bit of interaction, um, but I also had some roots in the Bay Area where our uh, my AAU coaches, the youth coaches I had were the same coaches that coached his sons in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So I had these weird little connections, um, but coach was going through, you know, a coaching change in the middle of the summer and I had seen him and, and talked to him actually a couple of weeks before it happened. And I think I was probably in his head. He was looking for a, um, you know, a younger coach that had head coaching experience um, and really just somebody that was a basketball person and somebody he could trust. And so I was lucky that I got on the list of those, those coaches. Um, but like in, in true coach Musselman fashion, it was early in the morning, 6am call. Uh, you know, we just wanted to talk and say hello and, uh, we did that, and, and it kind of grew in a quick amount of time there. But I was I was extremely happy at East Bay. So that's the one thing that everybody says is, well, you know, why do you take jobs? And I think sometimes you really have to evaluate, you know, some of your dreams and your aspirations. Um, and being at East Bay was was phenomenal for me. It was like being at the, with the Lakers. I, I I had no I don't I never cared about the level. Um, but I really started researching into Nevada and where the basketball program was in a quick period, and I just thought wow, the opportunity to learn, um, and it's not a, a power five school, but we were a power five program in terms of how good we were or they were going to be. So I just really, it was a really hard decision in terms of leaving the program that I was building. Cause it wasn't fully built yet. You know, I think we had everything on, but let's say the shingles on the roof, we were right mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. you know, and I was really proud about where we were. I thought the next two years were going to be our best time. And I didn't want to leave an unfinished product at the same time like I've told you before, the timing of coaching is so hard. You know, I can't judge when somebody calls and, and offers yeah. you a job. Um, and after going up to Nevada, checking it out, and even though I was from the Bay Area, I never really was around Nevada. I'd never even been in the, the, the gym other than one time playing there. But so I I kind of did my research and I thought that it was a it could be a game changer for me as a coach in terms of improving. Um, and I and I always had deep down in the back of my mind that I would love to, to be a division one head coach. I just thought that was something that that I could do. And I was 
excited for a chance to maybe help myself to do that. Uh, but I wanted to learn and get better too and, and see if the things that I was teaching at East Bay um, needed improvement or what I was doing well, what I was doing wrong and really compare those two things. And then I also wanted, I wanted a chance to go see, you know, how I did with recruiting and all those things at a level that was elite, you know, during that time there, we were, uh, you know, top 25 for, I think 25 straight weeks. We were got as high as number five. Uh, my last year there, we were in the top 10 for, I think 16 straight weeks. So it was a dream run in two years, um, two championships and, you know, we had an epic sweet 16 run one time, which was fantastic. And so it was, it was a, for sure the right decision that I made. Uh, but I do think that like for coaches, it's very hard to leave where you're at when you're extremely happy. And I have a family, two boys. Um, and so, you know, you can't just look at yourself, you know, your, mm-hmm. your whole party has to be on board. Um, you know, and, and my wife has been phenomenal about that, but it's also, my boys are getting older too. So it was, it was hard for them. They were six and eight. Um, and so when I moved them, that was like the first time in our career where they had friends. Now they were going through that. And that was a hard process as a coach, just to know that deep down I'm the one taking them away from kind of their happy place in some ways. Right. And I was in the Bay area where my family was, my brother was, had just taken the head coaching job at Dale South. So we were, we were tight there. Um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't too far away. It's three hours away from the Bay area. And, it worked out phenomenally. I, I loved the community of Reno. It's one of the greatest things I've ever done. It was a great chance to take, um, and it really worked out, you know, perfectly in terms of that for me. There are some big differences between the players that you had at Cal State East Bay and the players at UNR. What are some things that you noticed that are different in uh, their approach to the game, their attitude, and how did that affect the way you recruited? Well, there definitely are, and again. I always say the difference is always, you know, three to five inches, you know, some athleticism. Yeah. Uh, I think that the discipline, the sacrifice is, is very similar in a lot of ways at, at both levels uh, if they're serious players, because it's, it's really no different with that. But I would say that, you know, I coached our last team at Nevada. I think we start every player on the starting roster was a professional player after that year. Uh, three of them were NBA players, uh, the Martin twins, Jordan Caroline. Um, so you're, you're going up now against a level of guys that are, extremely diligent about their work. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go give those guys an example because people know who they are. You know, two twins that were played at North NC State and then they transferred to Nevada and I coach them for their junior and senior year. And probably two of the most dedicated athletes I've ever been around. Um, they make you better as a coach because they know everything that you're telling them already in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the great ones like a Cody and Caleb, you know, here comes this Division two coach this guy that, you know, had never coached in the NBA. I never coached at some big, big schools. Or that. I guess I was the Arizona State as a GA. But I come in here, and they literally acted like I was Phil Jackson. They really listened. They, they wanted to know what I what I knew or what I could help them with because they wanted to be great. If I could give them, you know, I remember sitting in my office on a game day, my first week there, first week of games, and in walks Cody Martin on a game day. And it's probably two hours before shoot-around. Shoot-around was like at 1 o'clock. I'm like, what's up, Cody? And he said, hey, coach, let's let's watch their last game just live. Let's just watch it. And I'm sitting there going, okay, let's let's get it on. And we didn't really say a whole lot, but he'd stop and rewind it. And he was like a boxer. He was like a, you know, he's like these 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 guys that when you look at it in a movie and you go, wow, this guy's really studying his opponent. You know, he's he he really wants to know. He doesn't want to look bad. He wants to know everything that he possibly can. And what that made me realize was, wow, like. If I bring the most minute thing to this guy, he's going to really want like want this information. Like an example being, hey, he, this guy loves to drive left. Well, you say that to some 
student athletes or some high school players or college players and they go, okay, we, we know that, but, but then he'd say, well, what's well, a secondary move? Uh, how many dribbles can he go off that, go in that direction? I mean, he was so precise. And I think that's the next level of thinking that you do get with some of these players that end up being NBA players. I think they have great belief in their coaches because they know they wouldn't have come to the school unless they believed in what the coaches were talking to them about. So they're going to really do what you what the coaches want them to do because they know that it's going to pan out. I think that Coach Musselman did a great job of letting them see that, hey, I know the path to the NBA. If you follow it, you'll have a better chance as if you don't. And if we win the way that we think we can win, you're going to have a great chance. And, and they did. And, you know, they're making themselves into pros. I, I do think that every coach, if they're able to coach guys like that, it's a great experience because it makes you a better coach. Your, your, your preparation, you, you know, I, I can remember being in a timeout at Boise State. We're down two with the ball, and the, the huddle was just crazy. It's just, you know, there's 10 seconds left, and everybody's going nuts. Coach Muss is going nuts. Players are going nuts. I'm going nuts. Everybody's shook. Um, and again, it's it's this is what happens in a, in, a, in a huddle. And I remember Cody Martin just telling everybody to be quiet. Probably not knows that verbiage, but mm-hmm. um, you know we got this. Here's what we're gonna do. We had our play set. Coach set up the play. Cody kind of started, and it was like, wow, this is this is like amazing. And then we go out, and Cody hits a game winning three to to kind of keep our streak going. And it's when you're around those type of players, you know, that wasn't coaching. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I always say, yes, but the coaches put them in that same spot. And there's a lot, there's a family of belief. It's really hard to get at the college level. And so, um, you know, my time there was, was really magical for me. And, and again, I think it, it made me a better coach also because you can, you can look at these experiences and know that, well, what I gave to an NBA player helped him. It surely will help you uh, as a, a freshman here at Cal State Fullerton that's trying to, you know, get playing time, right? Um, so it gives you even more confidence as a coach. What's something that you learned from Coach Musselman that you take with you today at Cal State Fullerton? There's so many. Uh, if you ask me that about every coach, um, I could. If you ask me about Coach Taylor, I could give you a billion. And, and with Coach Musselman, um, I'm gonna give you a couple actually. Like one thing is, is that you know you think you're working hard, but you can always work harder. He's a he's a machine. He's a he's a worker. He's you know, he wants you to work at a high level, but he also is going to do that as well. Um, I think that um, the thing that he was a master mind was, was creating energy around his program. I think in nowadays with social media and things that you, you have to have a great product, you have to know the game, um, you have to be a leader, a recruiter, but you also have to be able to kind of sell your program and get people excited and have a community. I, I learned that, you know, if you do the right things, if you win the right way, a community can really get behind a program. And when that gets going, it was amazing to watch him create the energy that we did. And I'll give you an example is we went to the NCAA tournament. We stayed in the regular old Marriott. The NCAA put us up in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And the first game, as we walked out to go down to the bus, there was probably about 25 families and some friends in the lobby cheering for us as we walked out clapping you know, the band was there. It was great. It was cool. It was like the coolest thing I'd ever been a part of, right? You, you know, you're just so fired up. Fast forward a week from that same day, and you're playing in Atlanta against uh, Loyola, who ended up going to the Final Four, Loyola Chicago. The lobby had, I'm going to say, 600 people in it. Wow. It was it was insane. I couldn't hear, and I had chills, like, walking out. I still have chills when I think about it. And that was just in a week. And I think that at college basketball, uh, especially at that level, you know, it's 
hard to create that. And you have to be a special person to ignite the fire in your community to sell yourself. He was not, you know, like I said, hey, coach, we need you to dress in a clown costume right now and go across and sell tickets. He's going to go do whatever he needs to do. He's going to he's going to really take his ego out of it. And he was an NBA coach. That's what everybody mm-hmm. forgets is he was a coach in, for the for the Warriors, for the Kings. And now you got you got him at 50 something years old. He's handing out pizzas. He's doing everything that a young coach would do um, and trying to do it even better. So, um, you know, I always say to everybody, Coach Moss is going to be successful, you know, wherever he is because he won't allow you not to be successful. Um, so just an insane worker and, and again, ins- inspires players in the community. I love that. Now you have taken the associate head coaching position at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, walk our listeners through what the roles and responsibilities are as a div- Division One associate head coach. I think, again, I think they're different for every program. I'm really lucky that I worked for Diedrich Taylor, who coached me back in, he always gets mad when I say this, but back in 1999 when I was a freshman at Davis. Um, so I have a relationship with him from when I played. Um, and he was like a mentor. He was like a big brother to me that year. I can still remember him driving me back from games after games and talking about what I was doing wrong. And here's how you, the coaches will see you in a better light if you do this, that. Um, but I, I would say that the first thing is, is, you know, our job as a, as an assistant coach is to try to help our coach look, look great. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to do everything to um, help his pro cause it is his program. It's our program, but it's his program with his name on it. Um, help it look better. And I think with each position, there's different roles that you need to fill. For me, um, you know, I would say that obviously a big part of it is recruiting student athletes. You know, that's mm-hmm. a huge, huge portion of it. Um, but being good at every little part of it, you know, I think that I don't have an ego in terms of if coach told me right now, Hey, every day your job is to sweep the floor three times, then I'll go do that. Cause I did that every day at East Bay. So, mm-hmm. you know, right. I, I've just kind of jumped in and done the things that he needs me to do. We do a little bit of everything. Um, uh, I would say probably in practice, you know, in terms of skill, there's different portions of that, that I would take over more than maybe coach Dunson or coach Santos. Um, that coach lets, he allows us just to go. He might say, you know, we walk into practice or before practice, he might say, Hey guys, I want you to work on finishing with our group. I want you to come up with two or three really creative drills to get us going because we're, we're really not finishing at the rim. So he'll give us certain times like that during the day, um, to work on that. Uh, in terms of like recruiting, he really has great trust in us to bring him the best possible players. Um, you know, this past year, because we were new, I probably dealt more with older players in terms of junior college and, and, division one transfers. Cause that's something we did in Nevada. Um, you know, we have a director of operations who does a lot of things like organizing travel or organizing camp, but I'll help and work camp for the day. I'll do all those different things. So I would say that, you know, the one thing that, that is probably a little bit more in my role is, is him bouncing ideas back and forth, trying to help him with his decision processes, uh, giving him another light, being a former head coach, knowing some of the pressure he's going through. But Coach Taylor's program is kind of a final old machine. Talk to me, Coach. You mentioned uh, two things I want to get into. One, recruiting. Tell me what you look for in a recruit and how um, how important some of those things are. And then we'll talk about skill development. So first, tell me about a little bit how you recruit. Awesome. In recruiting, it's very different. You have to recruit to your head coach. Um, recruiting to Eric Musselman, recruiting to Jim Les, to Rob Evans, Ben Braun, I can go down the list of coaches. They're all very different. Their needs are very different. That's the number one thing you have to understand first is who are you recruiting for? Um, what Diedrich Taylor wants is competitiveness. He wants character. He wants energy. Um, he wants shooting because that's something that they had struggled with. Um, and again, with each 
with each position, it's different as well. Um, for me personally, I would just say that I really look for um, length. Um, coming from Nevada, our team was just a, a group of six, seven guys at every position. Six, and again, that's a luxury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why we were good, we had six, five, six, seven point guards and all those things. But I do think that what you learn at that time for me was if you can get somebody that has a little bit of skill and is able to have that length, you become a really dangerous team defensively. You become extremely versatile. Um, and I think that the way the game is, is being shaped, there's, there's, it's such a limited uh, pool of post players um, that are big, strong, um, that you have to go more with the hybrids uh, and get guys that are can play multiple positions. So that's something I do really look for is, um, you know, versatility. Um, you know, when I call somebody on the phone, I do want to have a connection. Uh, it is hard for me to recruit players that are extremely quiet. <laughs> that sounds funny. Um, but if I get on the phone and, and I'm having to pull teeth, it's going to be really hard for me to want to um, recruit you more uh, because there's so many players out there. Um, I do think, though, that one thing in being at East Bay helped me learn, and I've said this many times, is my weakness, I think, before I got to East Bay was uh, coaching players that were more quiet, more introverted. Um, I, I was always trying to pull that out of them, which was great, but I think it made me mo- super frustrated with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to learn how to coach and take what they have and not force them to be something that I want them to be. Um, so then in the recruiting process, you go, okay, well, then I'm going to gravitate more towards these type of guys because I know I like to be around that type of energy or that type of uh, person. So I do think that you go through a lot of, um, you know, I, I check people off really quickly if I call them and it's one word answers they're driving in the car with their buddies and they're not even, you know, stepping out, you know, pulling over and make, taking the call. Those things are really important to me because if you're having to beg them during the process, you know, what's going to happen when they get to campus, you're going to be doing the exact same thing, which, which none of us, uh, none of us want to do. You're a, a, a big time skill development guy, um, players that you coach and prove in their individual skills what are some things that you do to help players improve skill-wise? I'd say that one thing is that, you know, I've been lucky to work for coaches that do care about that. Everybody says that they do, but but a lot of times there's coaches that don't. You know, I think that um, you have to have patience to want to develop people and to want to develop players. So I've been, like, like Coach Taylor, um, you know, it wasn't just uh, he got the job and two years later he was winning championships. It took him – it was a process. He had three years of really struggling and getting the program together. And then it took off. And even last year, we took a step back from where we wanted to be. Um, but to get the program where he wanted it, he decided, hey, we really, really, really need to um, get some younger guys and, and make them understand what we want, develop them. I think for me, getting in the gym with guys, um, you know, getting in there early, I think the number one way you build a relationship with a student athlete, a player of yours is to sit in the gym, rebound for them, sweat with them, you know, again, put your arms on them, like, like have them feel that you are working with them. Um, you know, when I was a head coach at East Bay, I used to run every sprint. Like when a team would lose, I would jump on the line and run with them. Um, and I was like my, and like if they, if they lost to me, they knew they would run again. So like, I think that for us, younger coaches, and again, I'm 30, 39 in a week or two. That's not that young, I guess. That sounds pretty old. But I'm going to be coaching until I'm 65 or 70, right? Yeah. So I'm pretty young. Yeah. Um, I got a lot more years left in me, I hope. But I think that, you know, with skill and development, I think that you really have to have a plan. Like you can't just come out there and say, hey, we're going to get better at uh, 
finishing today. Okay. Well, what, what do you do or what are your things that you're really picking on? And I tried to, as I've gotten older, um, you know, be specific, you know, and I keep talking about finishing or passing. Those are things that, that don't get broken down a lot. They say, Hey, go through a pad and do that. But I think you have to really be specific early on in a summer or in a, a fall and teach your players the certain things you want, the footwork that you want so that fast forward to March, those things are just natural. Um, and like I've been to your practice, I've seen the footwork that you use and, and having the specific language. Hey, here's a jump stop. Here's a stride stop. Here's a left foot reverse pivot. Here's a right foot reverse pivot. Here's a lift fake. Here's a step through. If they don't know what those things are and there's not a language, then you're in deep trouble. So Coach Taylor's done a great job of creating a language. He's created an ethic of, hey, we have 30 minutes uh, before practice, get in the gym. Our guys do that. You know, we have 20 minutes in between classes. Our guys will come and we'll shoot 100 free throws. I think there's so many times during the day where you can do things that are really important. Um, and skill development also comes from film. So you have to develop their skill through them seeing it. So, you know, I encourage assistant coaches, head coaches, take five minutes and just like have one, you know, make 10 clips and show them 10 clips of a good player doing it so they understand why you want them to do it. Um, I can remember sitting in an office with Caleb Martin in Nevada, and he and I would always joke about jumping off one foot or two feet. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to prove to this guy that, like, you get, you have to come off two feet when you're in the, you know, the paint, whatever. So I'm going, and suddenly I'm saying, wow, there's a lot of guys jumping off one foot. But there's, you know, but then you see these guys, and you look at their percentages at the rim, and I'm going, okay, here, let's look at Steph Curry. He's not the biggest guy. He's not. And you look at his finishes in the half court, and Matt, wow, it's amazing when you start watching how many are off two feet or how many are a stride stop or how many. And you start realizing, well, there's a reason why they're really good is because they continually do the same thing over and over again that they have success with. And the ones that you see that everybody goes crazy about are the one floater from the free throw line off his left foot or right foot. But that makes it on highlights, right? Yeah. So, again, I think having a plan when you walk in the gym, I think I was very lucky to go to a coach for coaches that are great floor coaches. And I don't, I'm not saying I'm a great floor coach, but I do have confidence. And I think that when you're going into coaching – why I thought it was great for me to be at the division two level as an assistant or to be a young um, division one assistant or to be a GA was that I, I got my, I cut my teeth at an early age. So right now I don't feel uncomfortable ever walking on the floor and teaching, whether it be an NBA player or, you know, an eight, an eight year old at camp. Um, so again, I think that's really important too for coaches to really, you know, work at that part of it and just have a plan, you know, don't, don't walk in there and, have a sheet of paper and not know where you're going next. And act, you know, you need to be dialed in and, and memorized and ready to go and, uh, and be able to adjust on the fly. Very good stuff. Two things. And then I'll let you go. Um, professional development. What are some ways uh, that you develop as a coach off the floor, whether it be basketball related things like uh, videos or clinics or maybe professional development that has nothing to do with basketball. that makes you a better person. And then in turn makes you a better basketball coach. Well, you know, I would say that probably the number one, I'm a big family man. So mm-hmm. that's my number one thing in my life, you know, and, and again, as you went through this and it was great for me to talk about it, you know, in terms of moving and all the things that go on with your career. Uh, I think it always comes back to, you know, my wife, my two boys, my family, are the, they're the most important thing. So for me, you know, when I'm not coaching, you know, I'm doing something with them as much. I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of hobbies. I don't, I don't golf. Um, you know, my hobbies are, I run a lot. I try and surf, even though I'm really bad at it. Um, <laughs> I hang out with my boys, uh, and my wife. Those are, those are, that, that's kind of my, my life circle, which is maybe different than some coaches. Um, you know, I would say that something that I try to do is try to stay in good shape. I think that as a coach, 
um, it's important for you to do that. Uh, and again, that sounds so simple, um, but I think that you need a release. You know, uh, I do read, um, I do listen to podcasts. I do do all those different things. I have certain books that I really like. Um, I would say one thing that I've challenged myself to do, um, and I do it probably not as much as I want to, but like each day I'll either try and send a text, a letter physically. If it's, if I'm at the office, I haven't been in the office for two months because of, (laughs) because of all this, but like a thank you type of text. Um, and I did it a lot like this fall with letters, handwritten notes, just like somebody random that pops in my head. Um, I'll say the one thing I try to do every day is like send a text, like to one of my high school buddies or something that's not just, Hey, what's up more like, Hey, uh, I really appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for this, this, and this. And I think it's, that's probably like the one thing that I try to do, um, on a consistent basis. That's maybe different than, and that's like my, I don't know where I stop myself for maybe a couple minutes a day and do that. Uh, just like a thankful, I'm, I'm a pretty lucky guy. I've had a really good coaching career, but you know, I, my family's healthy during all this, you know, um, one thing that's really funny is during the pandemic, you know, it's been like so crazy for all us coaches. One thing for me that's been a blessing is, you know, I don't ever, I'm never home during the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I actually, you know, my 10 year old, uh, and my eight year old, I've actually like been able to rebound for him. Like how, like for two yeah. months this year, like every day, my 10 year old, he does 30 minutes of ball handling by himself. I had to write down a list of drills for him from like the pistol Pete movie, um, you know, all those different drills. And then we shoot and he makes like a hundred shots and he gets super annoyed. He wants to play Fortnite, but we get out there and we do that. And you know, he's like had such a great improvement in two months. My eight year old, he would shoot like with like seven hands, a hundred thumbs. And now he actually has like kind of a normal shot. Um, and so it was just fun to kind of see that. Uh, so for me, you know, as we all do have to do a better job of like enjoying that, um, you know, and as a dad, I think that's really important in coaching. It's super hard. Like I can never not, my phone's right next to me right now. Um, and and again, we all say, but can you put your phone down more than, you know, we do. Um, my favorite book is probably energy bus. Um, you know, I love that book. Um, I could read it over and over again. Good to great is a phenomenal book that I've read multiple times. Um, you know, and again, those are really my inspiration. I love the water. So I'm extremely lucky to live where I live the water is probably my meditational thing my being able to be around that i feel very fortunate when you wake up and you can feel the ocean breeze so i'm i'm a lucky guy when it comes to that uh advice for coaches um you've been all over the map coaching in college you've uh, head coach assistant coach grad assistant and everything in between what are some advice what is some advice that you have for basketball coaches that's so hard and uh, i would say that your journey is going to be yours you got to ride your own race um you know, you're going to feel a lot of pressure when you look to your right and your left. Cause I have just being very transparent. Like I've had buddies that, um, you know, suddenly they're a head coach at division one level at 34. And you're like, wow, what am I doing? What, what am I doing right? Or what am I doing wrong? And I think that's the one thing you're doing wrong is you're looking at somebody else's journey. And it's so hard cause you want to do really well. Yeah. You want to be great. And, um, you are great. You know, like that's the one thing I always say to myself is like, Hey man, like calm down, like, Focus on what what you're doing. Um, I think for young coaches coming into this, you have to be fully prepared that it's not about your finances, which is extremely hard in this day and age because you do have to make money. You do if you're going to college coaching, even high school coaching. Like coach, you, you could be coaching at a lot of different levels. You're not doing it just because of your paycheck. That's a part of it because you have a family and you have to take care of them. But 
you want to be around young people. You want to inspire them. So when you get into it, you have to know that. I always say the first five years of your career, you try to meet as many people as you can. You want to try to get as much connection as you can um, and know that your connections are probably going to be more than the dollars you get in your pocket. Yeah. You know, and that's what you're working towards to build yourself up. And you can't be wrong or right in those five or six years. Now, after you get past that, you can be wrong or right because you have to do what's best, not only for you, but your family, if you have one. Um, and then I would say, you know, everybody always says like, be where your feet are, or do the best job you possibly can. And coach Taylor used to always tell me that when he was mentoring me as a young coach, be great here, win where you are, do a good job. And people will notice that. Um, I do think that's true. I also think though, the, the biggest name in every game is to get to know more people. And to not be somebody that as you walk around, um, to not have an arrogance, to not have a me versus the world type thing. I think those people turn off other coaches. Um, I think you have to be open. You have to be somebody that, um, you know, is willing to put themselves out there. Um, and I think you have to try to meet as many possible people as you can and then create a real relationship like you and I have. You know, you and I have – ours goes back years from – recruiting one of your players who was one of my former, you know, mm-hmm. and then they, they keep evolving in different ways, not just being transactional in terms of you want this or I want this. And um, I think that because basketball is like that at times when it comes to recruiting or relationships. So, um, you know, but also not having an ego with it, but I'd really go back to that one portion of it. And again, I'm 39 years old. So I have 16 and you say 16, that makes me feel old, but just, just focus on, what is best for you and your family at this time, not what looks like it should be the best or, you know, have a right fit work for good people. Um, you know, if you get yourself in a situation that isn't a great one, learn from that and don't make that same mistake again. Um, you know, I don't take notes. I'm not a, like people say, Hey, do you have a notebook? I don't do that. Uh, unfortunately that's not my, but if you ask me to talk about all my experiences, I, I can go on and on and on. Um, so that's not really how I work. So I've never tried to be something I'm not. Um, but I do, I do keep a, you know, like I have a Dropbox, right? And so everything that I've ever wanted to save, like I put on Dropbox, like if you don't have something personally that you, and I, and that you can always have at any point that you can steal from, cause all we're doing is stealing and coaching. Like, like right now, if you said, Hey, give me something inspirational to send to a player. I could give you a thousand things in two minutes um, that I've sent in the past because I think you're always pulling from those and taking different things. So um, be a sponge, be organized, um, you know, and then the last thing is if you're going to be a coach, you know, you can, the number one thing, and, and Greg Klink gave me a watch when I graduated from Davis, just don't ever be late. Mm. <laughs> be, on time, be on time to everything you do. And that's a simple thing, but I, I've never been late. That's how you lose all credibility. That's yeah. how you miss out on probably half the opportunities of, of your life. So that's that. Very good stuff, Coach. Uh, we appreciate you joining us, uh, taking a little bit of time away from your work and your family. We will be rooting for the Cal State Fullerton Titans, uh, my alma mater, uh, if and when we get back on the floor, hopefully sooner rather than later. Thank you very much, Coach. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at nicksinato at ymail.com. See you next time. Yo, what's up? This is Prophet Josiah. Make sure you listen to my album, God Made Me Do It, on all streaming platforms. Right now, you are listening to MTMV Sports. Keep it locked.